Welcome. Uh, my name is Nina Kunimoto. Um, I am a local educator and a student starting the fall at UMass Boston. My name is Chris Levensey. I'm a teacher here in the area. Um, teach high school history and we're happy to be here today. And so last week um, in the studio we had Martin Espada and Lauren um, Marie Schmidt who are both um, award-winning poets and they talked about teaching and resistance and it was an amazing show if you missed it. You can find that show on um, our podcast. Today is August 5th and um, 73 years ago the United States dropped an atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan and um, thereafter for many many years um, they dropped a bomb for 12 years in the 60s they dropped a bomb every single day an atomic bomb and sometimes a, an H-bomb on the Marshall Islands um, in particular Bikini Islands and so today we're going to commemorate the victims of those bombings um, by talking about resistance against wars and about the profits made from these production of these nuclear weapons and the use of them. So instead of a song, um, I thought we'd start out today with a poem um, that I will read in Japanese, and um, I will read the translation thereafter. Um, this poem is written by Sadako Kurihara. Uh, she was born in 1912 and um, died in 2005. She was present um, in Hiroshima on that day that the bomb was dropped on August 6th, which uh, that would be tomorrow, 1945. And that incident really transformed her, and she became quite a controversial poet because her major, her first major collection of poems called Black Eggs was published in 1946, and it was highly censored by American occupation censorship regulation because of her boldly addressing the horrors of the aftermath of the bomb. Um, and the, the full volume of her book, Black Eggs, was not published until 1986. And for those of you who are not aware, the United States occupied Japan um, for a number of years and continued to occupy Okinawa for many more years. Um, so this is a, a poem. I will read the translation after. And the title is Umashimenkana. うましめんかな。壊れたビルディングの地下室の夜だった。原子爆弾の負傷者たちは赤ん坊が生まれるというのだ。この地獄の底のような地下室で今若い女が産気づいているのだ。マッチ一本ない暗がりでどうしたらいいのだろう。人々は自分の痛みを忘れて気づかった。と私が三馬です。私が生ませまし
It was a night spent in the basement of a burnt-out building. People injured by the atomic bomb took shelter in this room, filling it. They passed the night in darkness, not even a single candle among them. The raw smell of blood, the stench of death, body heat and the reek of sweat, moaning. Miraculously, out of the darkness, a voice sounded. The baby's coming. In that basement room, in those lower reaches of hell, a young woman was now going into labor. What were they to do without even a single match to light the darkness? People forgot their own suffering to do what they could. A seriously injured woman who'd been moaning but a moment before spoke out, I'm a midwife. Let me help with the birth. And now life was born, there in the deep, dark depths of hell. Her work done, the midwife did not even wait for the break of day. She died, still covered with the blood. Bring forth new life, even should it cost me my own. Bring forth new life. Wow. I I think about um, my students at school and um, even video games and things, and the glamorization and the excitement and the shock and awe of weapons and Mm -hmm. the technology and wow this is a new step and the genius to create this Mm -hmm. and then um, both you and I have gone to the um, both Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the Mm -hmm. Peace Park in Hiroshima and and things like these poems bring to life and humanize uh, the impacts of these Mm -hmm. and I I know um, at the Smithsonian you can go see the Enola Gay the one the plane that dropped the bomb and you know, oh, how exciting that is, but, but this is a plane that delivered the bomb that killed these hundreds of thousands of people. And so um, this is, these kinds of things are what ground me in humanity versus the kind of TV and excitement of, oh, here's a new technology or here's mm-hmm. a new destruction or here's what I can do on a game or something. So right. it's, uh, it's very sobering and, and roots us in our humanity, I think. Yeah. Um, so we... Um both Chris and I uh, interviewed Randy Keeler. Um, and so do you want to tell us a little bit about who Randy is? Yeah, I just wanted to put a little context, too. First, um, to mention um, which the countries that currently have nuclear weapons uh, today. And most of them we know. A couple are less known. Mm-hmm. But uh, certainly the United States and Russia are considered the two big nuclear powers. But the United Kingdom, France, uh, China... India, Pakistan, Israel, Mm -hmm. uh, which you often don't see on lists, but Israel has nuclear weapons, and North Korea um, possess approximately 16,300 nuclear weapons in total. And the other thing that, um, in doing research for this, found that there's quite a few countries that are right on the cusp for various reasons. Um, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Vietnam, Taiwan... Republic of Korea, Japan, Germany, Italy, Australia, for various reasons, both political, economic, um, and different kinds of things. And so the nine or 10 that have it currently, and then almost doubling with the uh, countries um, that could potentially um, get nuclear weapons in the near future is, um, creates uh, incredibly kind of dangerous and staggering Peace. And so um, somebody that we both uh, have heard about and took a lot of, um, 
well, I'll introduce him, but uh, Randy Keeler, born in 1944 in Bronxville, New York. He's considered an American uh, pacifist and activist um, for social justice. He's objected to America's involvement in Vietnam and refused to cooperate with the draft. He's involved in several anti-war organizations, uh, 60s and 70s, and currently um, in 1969, during the Vietnam War, he returned his draft card to the Selective Service system and he refused to seek an exemption as a conscientious objector, said he didn't want to be part of the system at all. He felt that that was simply a form of cooperation with the U.S. government's actions in Vietnam. And so after being called for induction and refusing to submit, he was charged with a federal crime. Found guilty, um, he served 22 months of a two-year sentence. Um, he's also quite known and both for um, um, his connection with Daniel Ellsberg, who he met in uh, 69 and uh, who was, as he was preparing to serve his sentence, um, and he was part of the War Resisters International. Um, he was really pivotal in Ellsberg's decision to copy and release the Pentagon Papers, which were um, exposed the U.S.'s intentions in Vietnam well, well before the uh, 60s and the 40s and 50s. Mm -hmm. And so um, uh, also Randy's wife, um, Betsy Corner, also refused to pay her taxes um, for military expenditures and it resulted in, a, for both of them in 1989, seizure and eventual forfeiture of their house in Coleraine, Massachusetts, so just down the road from us. Yeah. Um, and this was documented in a film called Act of Conscience in 1997. And so before we launch into the interview, we wanted to talk and focus a little bit on, um, I mean, obviously a lot of people, I think, in schools and um and the media focus on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but very, very few people focus on the Marshall Islands, which are actually U.S. territories, or you call it U.S. colonies, much like Puerto Rico is. But we, uh, both Chris and I, in preparation for this show, watched this documentary by John Pilger, who is a journalist from Australia, um, has this documentary called The Coming War with, uh, I'm sorry, The Coming War on China. Um, and in the beginning of the documentary, um, we'll, we'll link it on the Facebook page, um, he, he exposes the, the realities of, of U.S. human experimentation on the people of the Marshall Islands and continued, I'm going to use the word pauperization, which, which to me is, is a deeper sense of poverty of the people there um, in relation to this Ronald Reagan missile site that, that's still there today, right? And an island, which is the slum of the Pacific, right across from it, of people who live there with not a single clinic, who take the boat every single day onto Ronald Reagan missile site to serve these American people um, who are, are, are managing and testing weapons that are, that's essentially going to kill most life on the planet. So we wanted to kind of focus on that more than Hiroshima and Nagasaki, um, even though it's all very connected and related. And Nina, could you say, again, just to give a scope of this, um, how many bombs, or the, the time period of the, the number of bombs that were dropped? Oh, yes. So one atomic bomb that was bombed on Hiroshima was dropped, I, th I wasn't sure if it, I think on Bikini Island specifically, yep. um, which is part of the Marshall Islands. It's a group of islands. One which of was inha is inhabited. Mm -hmm, right? Was inhabited. Yep. Um, one bomb per day for 12 years. 
It's astounding. Yeah. And when you watch this documentary, um, he interviews the people, right? Today, this documentary was made either last year or the year before. And these people are still alive today. And a lot of the testing happened in the 1960s. Um, I don't know, what, what are some of, like, what else do you remember from that? Well, as you can imagine, um, the incredible amount of um, birth defects, the incredible amount of cancer um, rates far beyond anywhere in the area. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of times more than anywhere in the area. Um, the lack of um, care afterwards that some of the mothers um, who had faced um, miscarriages, who had faced they weren't allowed to have uh, care because it wasn't termed to be connected to the nuclear testing. And so it was just astounding how you had to bend over backwards to um, kind of deny a mother care based on this nuclear testing. But as you said, too, this was they didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't know how it was going to affect humans and how far. And so they were blindly testing these to see what would happen. And so they took the people that lived both on Bikini and the surrounding islands, and they tested them, and they, contested, they test them continuously even to today to see what the effects are to them. And so these human beings, our fellow citizens, are lab rats and to nuclear weapons. And yeah. so they've been to see what's happened to their skin, what their blood pressure is like, what kind of cancers they developed. And so it is a incredibly inhuman practice. And, and again, they didn't know what was going to happen. And they started to um, kind of document that on these human beings, live human beings. And the U.S. government knew that it wasn't good. I mean, they may not have known the specific um, outcome of what would happen if a human being lives in radiation, but because they wanted to know, right, they sent these people back on a boat back to the Bikini Islands knowing that it is a, an inhabitable island because of the, the radiation. And now the island, they can't grow food. They, mm -hmm. um, there's no industry. That Certainly no company is going to come there. So all their food has to be imported. And they're, they're, the food that they get... Um, which some of it is free from the U.S., is they now have the highest rates of diabetes and, uh, in the entire world. Because they're sending them things like spam. Yeah, and it's, it's a, a continued assault on their humanity. And, I mean, another thing is that each of those missiles that they test is $100 million per missile, right? And I wonder who produced those missiles, how... What, do, what compensation do they get and who makes that $100 million and who pays the $100 million and who pays with their lives? And, and I just can't ignore that we are, that in essence, the people of the Marshall Islands are people of the third world. Yep. Just incidentally, too, the, a recent report by uh, Don't Bank on the Bomb, it identifies 26 major nuclear weapons producers and more than 382 banks, insurance companies, pension funds, and asset managers from 27 countries that invest significantly in these corporations, these 26 corporations, and they all have an invested interest in having high nuclear weapons budgets around the world. And so um, the profit being made uh, is, is grotesque, and the comparison about the testing that's and what's happening to people with on the Bikini Islands, but around the world from this is um, unconscionable. Yeah. So. All right, so let's take a little 
break. Sure. So we're going to play um, this song called 99 Luftballon. Well, that's in German by Nena. Um, but in English, it's 99 Red Balloons. And um, it is a, a, the song is a comment on um, U.S. militarism. You and I in a little toy shop Buy a bag of balloons with the money we've got Set them free at the break of dawn To one by one they were gone Back at base, box in the software Flash the message, something's out there Floating in the summer sky Ninety-nine red balloons go red balloons um okay so uh welcome back you're listening to indigo radio on 107.7 brattleboro community radio station um 
and you're listening to Indigo Radio. Um, we're on every Sundays at noon. Um, and so today our topic is uh, nuclear weapons and resistance against war um, because it is August 5th and 73 years ago tomorrow um, the United States dropped uh, atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and continue to do so on the Marshall Islands. And I um, see we all help each other out. So last week, Kelly Juno was on the air, so you may know her if you're listening. Um, and she texted me and said, don't forget about the Western Shoshone, um, which is in our own country, right? Um, they are uh, part of the, uh, they are in the state of Nevada, and they are the most bombed nation on earth, according to Winona Leduc. Um, because that, that is, that's where the bombs are produced. Isn't that right? Like sort of out West, I'm not sure if it's produced there, but it's kept in the deserts there and they have tested, um, in the, in the deserts and, and yeah. So thank and, you, Kelly. And so the, the people that continue to be, or the, uh, impacted by it are, are, um, are a certain class of people and a certain group of people. And so the, the people that are uh, often invisible to yeah. us yeah. in many ways. And even I forget. Alrighty, so um, we're going to launch into uh, our interview. Uh, we interviewed him at his home in Colring, Massachusetts. So we're going to play a recording of the interview um, with uh, Randy Keeler, who is a war tax resistor, but he is also just a war resistor. Um, he was a war resistor before he was a war tax resistor. Uh, and um, he, ha he's, he and his uh, partner, um, Betsy Corner, has had his had had their house um, seized um, for not paying taxes um, in order to protest the war, and he's been a, a strong um, resistor against the Vietnam War and the nuclear war, the nuclear weapons. Um, and so um, he's also, in, he was instrumental in helping um, Daniel Ellsberg um, release the Pentagon Papers about your lifelong work as a war tax resistor. And as you mentioned, you had no background in war resisting, and what pushed you to take that stand? Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, I became a war resistor um, before I became a war tax resistor also. But um, what pushed me to take the stand uh, was clearly the Vietnam War. Um, and... Even then, I think one it was living for 15 months as a college student, um, teaching in a refugee school in East Africa, people from Rwanda who had suffered an earlier genocide than the one that people have heard about that was 1995, I think, the hotel room, yeah, all that. Yeah. And so I was in a refugee camp. and, and um, But just being in, and it was in the country of Tanzania, Seeing how people there lived uh, made, helped me imagine how the Vietnamese live. I mean, it was mostly so-called peasant society, mm -hmm. very rich culturally, but very poor according to um, U.S. or European cult, um, materialist standards. Right. Um, and so when I, and I also learned more about U.S. foreign policy in mm -hmm. other areas including dirty deeds in Africa. So when I came back from teaching for 15 months, it was 1965, uh, Vietnam War was raging, and suddenly I could imagine what it was being, who was under those bombs. Mm. 
who was under the bombs. So <clears throat> that was it, and one thing led to another. I worked on a little campus, campus <coughs> anti-war activities, and then I signed a a um, a pledge uh, that I would not go if drafted, mm -hmm. and that I would encourage others like myself not to go if drafted, which was a violation of the law just to publicly encourage law-breaking, which mm -hmm. is what we were doing. And from then I soon went out to California to do some graduate work in uh, education and very soon got involved in anti-war activities there in the San Francisco area and turned in my draft card and just made a complete break with the uh, draft system and uh, and then went to work for the War Resisters League, mm -hmm. West Coast branch. When you started, was it already a strong movement when that first part that you described, um, or was that was there quite a conflict about should we do this, should we not do this? Was it pretty prevalent in terms of the school you were at? And well, I was at uh, Harvard College, <clears throat> where the predominant attitude was um, you can't criticize it because it's wrong. Um, you could criticize it because it's economically uh, hurting us, or you could criticize it because, you know, in some re militarily it's the wrong strategy. But to simply say it's wrong, you're killing people, destroying a country, was sort of outside the bounds of polite Harvard criticism. Wow. Students, <laughs> students in general, or, or at least a, a major portion of the students didn't buy that. And so demonstrations were already happening on campus big time and bigger and bigger in 65 when I got back from Africa. Would you say that's from the um, professors and the administration and uh, that kind of perspective that don't criticize us on moral grounds or other grounds, but you can talk about the tactics and things yeah. like that? I think it was typical probably all through academia everywhere. It was mm. sort of the typical academic, you know... Um, pretense of objectivity. Mm -hmm. If you if you let emotion gets into it, you're mm -hmm. not being objective. Mm -hmm. um, so objective means that you keep your own feelings out of it. Right. Yeah. Wow. And I'm wondering, um, you said dirty deeds in Africa, and I'm hoping this is sort of a segue into perpetual war today, because as we know, I mean, Africa, there's AFRICOM, and there's a lot of war caused by us. There are, our mm -hmm. troops are there mm -hmm. in, in Africa, on the continent. Right. And so what did you mean earlier, you said, the dirty deeds in Africa when you were in, working in the mm -hmm. refugee schools? And then what do you think, I mean, what's your analysis of the perpetual war continuing today around the world caused by us, the United States? Well, I think it's related to the perpetual nuclear arms race. It's all... It's all of a piece. Mm -hmm. And I think it's absolutely driven primarily by two things. One is corporate profit, mm -hmm. huge corporate profit. Uh, and, and if you stop to think about how um, degenerate and despicable and it is that anybody would profit off of killing, especially now when we're talking about killing the whole planet. Um, that's, I think... <clears throat> one of the factors, but the 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 uh, parallel factor is, I think, uh, our willingness to believe the propaganda that this is necessary for our own security, to 
to protect our country, to protect democracy, mm-hmm. um, and uh, preemptively now the word that's so prevalent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I just wanted to pop in here for a second, Nina, and that uh, yeah. um, uh, I thought it was quite profound um, when he, he talked about realizing that the bombs they're dropping are people that he was just with. Like, mm-hmm. the, these are human beings that we're dropping bombs on, and that um, got all of us quite emotional, I think. Yeah. And, it, and if you're just joining us, that, uh, we, that was Randy Keeler um, that you were hearing. Um, and, yeah, and also he was talking about profit. Um, and I, I'm just going to read a short little bit here. It was published in 2015 um, in The Nation. Um, and the title is Meet the Private Corporations Building Our Nuclear Arsenal. It says, indeed, the detonation and suing fires would send up so much smoke and particulates into the atmosphere if we dropped an atomic bomb um, that the results would be a nuclear winter leading to worldwide famine and the possible deaths of hundreds of millions, including Americans, no matter where the missiles went off. Yet, as if in a classic Dr. Seuss book, one would have to add, that is not all. Oh, no, that is not all. At the moment, the Obama administration is planning for the spending of up to a trillion dollars over the next 30 years to modernize and upgrade America's nuclear forces. And if we look at um, the profit of it, as Randy mentioned, too, that um, I... um, in an article by International Peace Bureau, Parliamentarians for a Nuclear Nonproliferation and Disarmament and World Future Council, they talk about, and this was in 2015, over the next 10 years, governments will spend a staggering $1 trillion U.S. trillion on nuclear weapons glo- globally. That's $100 billion annually. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talked about the, the number of banks and insurance companies and pension funds that are profiting from that. Yep. And the major producers are American, Boeing, Northrop Grumman, General Dynamics, GenCorp, um, Lockheed Martin. Those are the people, or not all the people within the company, but um, the owners who make the profit. Yep. And I think um, I wanted to also just pop in and talk about um, you and uh, both Randy mentioned AFRICOM. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm not sure if a lot of people know that, but um, there is a new central command that now is focused specifically on Africa. They have ones for Europe, uh, Central and South America, North America, Asia, uh, AFRICOM. So Jessica Piombo, uh, she's a civilian, but she writes for, uh, she's a professor at the Naval Postgraduate School, um, writes um, about the U.S. military in Africa, and it's called Enhancing Security and Development. If we think about that, and we also (laughs) think about um, our previous comments about Marshall Islands and Bikini mm-hmm. uh, Island. It says um, they operate under the assumption that security, governance, and development are inextricably linked in the U.S. Africa policy, U.S. Africa policy. Poorly governed and thus poorly developed states are ripe for insecurity, she quotes. Given this, she writes, the U.S. military has attempted to create new programs that involve a range of government and non government actors in new security programs that focus on more than just training and equipping African militaries. Mm -hmm. This approach constitutes a new approach to security in Africa, one that requires a higher level of integration between civil servants, military personnel on the ground, 
and interagency communication. And so this narrative about our security and protection is mm -hmm. being um, expanded and connected to civil society um, mm -hmm. that, again, poor, I thought this was quite, quite astounding, poorly governed and thus poorly developed as, that is the, as, as if that is the reason for their underdevelopment, that they're poorly governed, mm -hmm. uh, that the states are ripe for insecurity. And so Al Jazeera comments on that a little bit too in saying that this is the ninth unified and sixth regional military command that was established, um, formed with the supposed intention of bringing peace and security to the people of Africa. This is Al Jazeera writing now. Um, their common goals of development, health, education, democracy, and economic growth in Africa, the command's establishment was justified on the grounds that weak states can pose as great dangers to U.S. national interest as strong states, as much as strong states. In order to achieve these objectives, AFRICOM defines its responsibilities as military-to-military -military partnerships to improve the capacity and operability of African armed forces assisting other U.S. agencies in fulfilling their tasks in Africa and, when necessary, undertaking military activities in Africa to protect America's national interest. I think that that pretty much says it all, America's yeah. national interest. So we'll um, return now to our interview with Randy Keeler. Okay. And, 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 you know, there is a um, term that uh, a famous Yale psychologist, whom let, I don't think he's still alive, but I'm not sure, Robert J. Lifton invented the term psychic numbing to... Um, he was doing research on the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and things like the, the, um, the firebombing of Tokyo and Dresden, and where it's just you know, massacring thousands and thousands of, of civilians in one. And what psychic numbing meant, as I understand it, that we as humans, or at least people in our societies, maybe people everywhere, um, have a capacity to just numb out in the face of things that are too threatening or too horrible to really hold in your consciousness. Right. And so you don't let it into your consciousness. Right. And you, your consciousness becomes numb to those kinds of realities. But I think there is also, you know, alongside the psychic numbing, I think there's also heart numbing. If you think about the way soldiers, for example, are trained, they're trained not to feel. No, not to empathize, mm -hmm. not to let compassion come into it. And soldiers who do are not good soldiers in the terms of the military. And I think on a, in a lesser way, even though we don't, we don't go through basic training as soldiers, most of us, mm -hmm. if we're not soldiers, um, but we go through a longer term, milder form of training through propaganda mm -hmm. that tells us that we have other things to think about. Right. So, it's almost the psychic numbing of, I th or I think of it as a kind of a heart numbing mm -hmm. that is caused by what we are thinking about. Right. And the fact that we live in probably the most materialistic culture that's ever existed, and where people's attention is, and what they're distracted by, keeps them from thinking about war and killing and whatever in Yemen, for example, today, or or places where these atrocities are happening that, that we are um, we are culpable. Absolutely, and, and I, I think of um, the media and the television and the internet, it, it does distract us, and, mm -hmm. and I, I feel like that's, you know, sort of part of this numbing. I mean, even, yeah. even the watching of 
violent movies and you know it, it's part of creating a, a mentality that it's acceptable yeah. or it has nothing to do with me or yeah 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 you know when 9-11 happened um we we, we called our daughter who who um i've forgotten what she was doing at the time but she's an elementary school teacher but and uh we said we were concerned we said have you heard what happened have you seen it and she said oh we're watching it i we said how are you feeling about it she said you know it's not really real to me mm. i've seen so many movies and tv shows mm. with buildings yeah. being right. toppled and planes hitting and things exploding she said it's not really real yeah <laughs> I feel like they worked really hard to make it real and personal, juxtaposed against the exciting embedded journalists who were then bombing other places and mm-hmm. and right. the reality of those sol- or the realness of those soldiers, but then again, not even focusing on the people that were being killed around the world because of that. So it right. it was a interesting. We're going to humanize ourselves and continue mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. ignore or dehumanize mm-hmm. right. our opponents, which right. has happened in every... Having other. a violent culture, um, you know, allows us to be numb to other violence because we're just used to it, even though we're passive recipients of, of it through the media. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is just the amount of time um, that people spend on some kind of a screen. Yeah. Whether it's a smartphone or a computer or whatever, yeah. um, is just climbing every day. And so, when are you supposed to let in the things that really matter? Mm-hmm. You don't have time. Mm. That's what seems right. to me. So, going back to what, uh, what Chris or you were both talking about um, the soldiers, especially in Iraq, but in, but in any war, I think of uh, class differences because the people who mm-hmm do go out and fight are generally working class, people who can't afford to go to college, right? Mm-hmm. So um, we're, we're sending poor people, basically, to go out and and, um, right. and fight for some kind of freedom or other. Thinking of in terms of, you know, so wars generally, historically, have been, have been class. There was class involvement, Absolutely. right? In nuclear weapons, let, let me just, for the mm-hmm. listeners, read what Daniel Ellsberg has said in his book Doomsday Machine, and I'm I'm just kind of curious what you think of mm-hmm. like is there sort of a class dimension to nuclear warfare? So he says in in, in his book um, Doomsday Machine that in 1961 the Joint Chief of Staff estimated that hundreds of millions of people, perhaps a third of the Earth's population, would perish from a nuclear war. In 1983, we learned that in fact due to a nuclear winter and a nuclear famine, a large a nuclear war would kill nearly every human on Earth, um, basically near omnicide. Um, so what do you think? Is there a class dimension to, to nuclear warfare? I think some people would argue with a sort of cynical smile on their faces, uh, no, we've eliminated the class distinctions here. We're just, <laughs> we're, everybody, will be, everybody will be obliterated um, you know, rich and poor and so forth. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there's certainly a major class distinction in terms of who is actually uh, devising these policies. Mm-hmm. I mean, the people who worked in the Pentagon with Dan Ellsberg mm-hmm. and the people there now um, are not poor people. Some may have come from poor backgrounds and done extremely well with on Harvard scholarships, as he did. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they've been recruited but by and large, it's a very elite group, 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they are also the ones, I mean, they are the corporate heads who's, who are profiting off all this. Mm-hmm. And um, they're the ones who devise the propaganda that tells us that this is necessary. And I thought maybe you can add to that, too. I was, we had recently watched um, a documentary about, um, I think it's called War on China. The Coming War on China China. by John Pilger. And it talks about the testing that happened in the Bikini Islands and and the state of the people there now and the massive amount of cancers and um, physical deformities and um, teeth falling out and all kinds of stuff that's happening that the impact of whether it's in Vermont Yankee here in Vermont or around the world, how it, it impacts a certain group of people as well, mm-hmm. um, both the testing, the everything about that, that kind of dimension as well. Well, if you think about it, um, so-called domestic nuclear power, um, as exemplified by the Vermont Yankee plant and so many others, was originally created um, as a justification for the... Um, the foreign and military use of this new thing called atomic energy. Mm. And it was atomic energy for military purposes was sold as a corollary to this great domestic thing Mm. that was going to be beyond class, by the way, and it Mm. would be available to everybody, cheaper energy in every country, every part of the world, and and, and so forth. Who gets impacted by those, I mean, the use of nuclear energy today, the, the, the soldiers that are dealing with nuclear weapons, the testing that has occurred, and we saw a piece about who may um, have nuclear weapons in the future, the number of countries from Japan and Taiwan mm-hmm. and Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. and that what we've experienced in the testing now is only going to increase. Um, and so it, the impact on the average American, the average citizen of the world, in, in terms of class in that way as well. I, mean, I was thinking about the... There's people making decisions and then the people that are impacted by those decisions. Right. There's a huge gulf between the decision makers and those who are impacted. And now it's the gulf is bigger than ever because the impact is universal, almost. Yeah. It's so criminal. It, it is. It really is. <laughs> it is so is. criminal. And you know, by the way, one of the hopeful things that's happened with regard to nuclear weapons, it's just a seed that needs to germinate and take, you know, flower and grow, but you probably know about the um, nuclear test ban treaty mm-hmm. that was, uh, hasn't been ratified yet um, in the United Nations, um, but it was signed by a hundred, the, the UN delegates from 122 countries this uh, past year, and in fact, because of it, the group that made this happen, which is a grassroots group from around the world called <coughs> ICANN, the International Campaign um, Against Nuclear Mm -hmm. Weapons. Mm -hmm. The ICANN, young people behind the scenes, I had never even heard of them, to tell you the truth, Mm -hmm. um, managed to pressure UN delegates all over the world. And so this 122 of them signed on to this thing. And um, it's called the International, well, it's the Test Nuclear Nuclear Ban Treaty. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it has to be ratified by the legislatures and parliaments, but the fact that it got that far was a huge step forward. And it showed that there was there is this germ of awakening that's happening, mm-hmm. that's motivating people into action, which is also what happened 
in, in the 19... During the 1980s, we had something called the Nuclear Weapons Freeze Campaign, which I was one of the co-founders of and Mm -hmm. the first executive director of. It was a national campaign that we've never seen anything quite as large since then. And people say, historians say even before then, we had statewide freeze organizations in all 50 states. We had a thousand local groups working on it. And it was almost as many uh, Republicans as Democrats polled were in favor of it. And uh, never very got very far in Congress. Mm-hmm. And uh, one time, one of the, a guy I know who was visiting a U.S. senator said, "Well, I don't get it. You know, the population as a whole is totally behind this. Every segment of the population, by big majority, why isn't Congress mm-hmm. passing at least a resolution or something to say yes, we're for it? And if the Russians agreed to it, which they, the Soviets, we would sign a pact and stop the nuclear arms race. And apparently." Two different senators on two different days told the same friend of mine who was doing lobbying on behalf of progressive causes. He said, you know what? You're looking at the wrong numbers. Don't look at the public opinion polls. Look at where the money comes from. And that's what at that point turned me into an activist on the money problem, mm. in which I did for actually more years than the nuclear disarmament problem. Mm, but, but so, um, and that's still the case. And that gets us right back to the whole thing about corporate profits right. and and their ability to blanket the media with their propaganda, because they own the media. Well, what I find interesting, um, and this was, I was just listening to a bunch of different (laughs) interviews done, um, people had interviewed Daniel Ellsberg, and one thing he said was interesting to me was that, I can't remember what Midwest place, state, or it's like Minnesota, or something like that, where um, the factories produce the nuclear weapons, Mm -hmm. right? And the workers do not want something like an ICANN or a nuclear weapons freeze because that would mean that they lose their jobs. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, it comes down to the propaganda, going going to the propaganda of like, the workers who produce these nuclear weapons have more in common with those around the world than they do with the people who are making the profit and that that isn't talked about or seen. Right? They're voting against their own interests. Yeah, they're voting against their own interests and it's just... But on so many issues, that's the case. Here in Massachusetts, we've tried to pass a progressive income tax um, time after time after time, and the polling is always the majority favor of it, favors it. And uh, and then the media is just overwhelmed with corporate advertising telling people why it's not in their interest to have people, wealthier people pay more. Workers, as you say, Nina, they want to protect their jobs. Um, they are encouraged to protect their jobs. They are encouraged to protest against protest. Right. Um, on the other hand, if we were ever to offer those same workers jobs doing productive things, especially environmentally related or just maybe transportation related, so much of what goes into building nuclear weapons is applicable to building trains or domestic airplanes or mm. all kinds of things um, that, but we would never do that. I mean, and there have been some amazing activist campaigns around economic conversion. And clearly economic conversion is desperately needed um, because otherwise um, the workers are held hostage. Right. You know, and... They need to put food on the table. Yeah. So... 
Um, welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio, um, WVEW FM uh, 107.7. Um, and you were just listening to um, Randy Keeler, War Tax Resistor. And our uh, show today is about um, commemorating the victims of Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and the Marshall Islands, um, and resisting against war, against imperialism, and against um, nu- nuclear weapons. Um, so um, I wanted to to comment a little bit about um, what he was just mentioning about that nuclear technology. Um, and I, I thought a lot about that, that technology itself, right, or even globalization, globalization itself is not bad. I mean, I think humans, since they were able to walk or they walked out of um, Olduvai, um, had been creating technology. But, and he was saying those same... Um, technical skills, right, can be used in order to, for the people, right, in order to, to, to make a better life for all people, not just some people. Um, and so it's interesting, you know, technology under specific economic systems, what it produces versus another. Yeah, it, it reminds me of the quote um, Eisenhower said as he was leaving and several times, and I'll quote him, he says, Every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired signifies, in the final sense, a theft from those who hunger and those who are not fed, those who are cold and not clothed. This world in arms is not spending money alone. It is spending the sweat of its laborers, the genius of its scientists, the hope of its children. This is not a way of life at all in any true sense. Under the cloud of threatening war, it is humanity hanging from a cross of iron. Mm. So this is Eisenhower, commander of all of the forces in Europe and president, speaking this. And it also, more recently, um, it was brought in comparison to, in England, they were going to update their Trident missile system, their sub-missile system, at a cost of $250 billion dollars. And they put it in terms that, that affect us, that um, the development of us. It says, this money would be enough to improve the National Health Service by building 120 state-of-the-art hospitals mm-hmm. and employing 150,000 new nurses, build 3 million affordable homes, install solar panels in every home in the U.K., or pay for the tuition of 8 million students. Right. So those are the choices yeah. that we're choosing. And so I think that's why it's important to see the connection between poverty or popularization and and war and imperialism um and racism and and they're all interconnected um so we have a last we have very few little time left um so um (laughs) this could be like two whole shows yes um so do we want to play a little bit of of the interview do we just kind of want to well, I also, I, I think um, I wanted to, yeah, I, I agree there's so many different ways we can talk about this in terms yeah. of the impact on individuals uh, from nuclear weapons, the economic aspect. Um, here at home, we both have taught in Holyoke, and mm. I can't count the number of times we saw the behemoth um, transport and cargo planes and the war yeah. jets flying over, and it became routine mm-hmm. to see those and to think about the cost of those and the the impact of what those planes are doing um, is not just some abstract kind yeah. of exotic thing that right. Enola Gay represents that 
the right. height of technology, as you mentioned. So, yeah, and um, maybe we'll have a, a second part with more. More. I mean, we have a lot more with Randy Killer that we'd love to share. But there was one thing that um, that I really appreciated that he said. He said, and and it's um, paraphrased, but he says, "What gives me hope is that." Um, we don't know what's going to happen in history. And I thought that was really important because he was also saying, like, you know, a lot of people go up to him and say um, that they don't know what to do, that they're so overwhelmed. And, you know, and his answer was, well, do something, right? And I think it's important to understand that um, there is no roadmap. There's no... I mean, we're, it's as though, you know, that kind of thinking really waits for some person to have a, a vision of the future, which is quite utopian, um, where, in fact, historically, people who've, who've struggled and, and to really try to change society, and, and I'm thinking of the Paris Commune because I'm kind of studying it right now, right, they, they figure this out as they go, right, and they learn from the mistakes of the struggles of the past. Like, exactly. it's not a failure that the Paris Commune failed. It's not a failure. The 60s wasn't a failure. It's for us to learn from and, and to continue that struggle. Yes, I couldn't agree more. And I think that the opposing side, the side that is um, imperialist and oppressing, is also learning from the past yeah. And, oh, yeah. and changing their tactics from the past. And so that we have to be every bit as diligent and smart and creative to, to do Absolutely. that as well. So Absolutely. Uh, um, so we're going to go ahead and um, start wrapping up. Um, and we'd like to thank Randy Keeler for giving us his time. Um, and we, we will do another segment um, that talk a little bit more about his work specifically. Um, and... Please tune in next week. Um, next week, Corey and Anna will be on the air, and they will be talking about the national prison strike, um, which will occur between August 21st to September 9th. Um, and so that will be um, next week's show. Great. And this is WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. And the views and opinions expressed on this program are those solely of the hosting guests, not of the radio station. Um, I think maybe we can go out on a song if that's okay. It's um, by The Clash called Washington Bullets. So any last comments, Nina? No, just have a good week, y'all. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Oh, mama, mama, look there. Your children are playing in the street again. Don't you know what happened down there? A youth of 14 got shot down there. The cocaine guns jammed downtown. The killing clowns of blood money men. Washington bullets again As every cell in Chile will tell The cries of the tortured men Remember Allende in the days before Before the army came Please remember Victor Hara In the Santiago Stadium Everdad Oh, it's Washington bullets again And in the Bay of Pigs in 1961 Havana for the Playboy in the Cuban sun For Castro is the color, is a redder than red Those Washington bullets want Castro dead For Castro is the color The bullet is a spray of lead
Check the British bullets in his armor. Yeah. Yeah. 